This is episode two of the Immunology Podcast, a tale of three sisters with Drs. Mindy, Amy, and Kristen Ankovic. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. Before we get to that, are you interested in finding out which of your favorite researchers are being featured in upcoming episodes of the podcast? Check out our list of upcoming guests at immunologypodcast.com backslash guests to learn more about upcoming episodes with Dr. Carl June at the University of Pennsylvania, Judy Lieberman at Harvard Medical School, and more. Today, we have a special guest episode featuring three sisters, Dr. Mindy and Amy Ankovic at the Medical University of South Carolina, and Dr. Kristen Ankovic at Baylor College of Medicine, who will be talking about their research and how they all wound up as immunologists. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... Looking for in-depth information on cell separation? Download the Cell Separation eBook from Stem Cell Technologies Now, a practical guide on everything you need to know about cell isolation techniques, including a collection of protocols. Visit stemcell.com forward slash cell dash separation to explore the guide and download the free eBook. All right. Well, it's time for us to get nerdy and chat about some papers that we've been reviewing this week. Right, Brenda? I'm looking forward to that. All right. Well, I guess I'm up to bat first. Uh, makes sense because we're going to talk about coronavirus, my uh, new old enemy at this point. And so the title of this first paper to kind of talk about is SARS-CoV-2 in severe COVID-19 induces a CGF-beta dominated chronic immune response that does not target itself. This paper was from the Mashregi lab and the first author is Marta Fiera Gomez, and it was in Nature Communications out recently, published on March 30th of 2021. So this paper is pretty cool because it's starting to dive into what I essentially dub the weird immune processes that are happening in COVID. So uh, as you guys, you probably know as well, when people get COVID, uh, some people get sick, some people don't get sick at all, really. And then those who do get sick have variable levels of immune response. And that immune response can also drive pathology and lead to a cytokine storm and then prolonged illness. And so it's been kind of a mystery as about what generates these different responses in different people. So uh, in steps, this group was trying to do one angle of this. And what's really cool about this is they were able to get uh, a good number, you know, nine-ish patients worth of data to, to look at longitudinally over time in the ICU. And they parse these out by different time points. So they kind of looked at patients who had been in the ICU for different periods of time. And that was really neat. Now, the cool part about this paper is that they were able to do this. The disadvantage is that the N is pretty small. It is only this small subset. But they were able to see conclusions by taking single samples from these patients and spreading them out longitudinally over time. And they could still see kinetics. And so that's really cool that you're actually seeing differences in time across people appear in these analyses. And so what they did is they did, of course, and since immunology lately, uh, single cell RNA sequencing um, with UMAP analysis to really look at and flow cytometry to really look at the populations that were going on in these groups. And long and short, what they found was that over time in patients with COVID, you have basically had a shift in population of cells where you had development of peripheral plasmablasts that displayed a type 1 interferon-induced gene expression signature, which is not surprising given it's a virus. You expect a type 1 interferon response. But then what they saw is that over time, you didn't get these high levels of 
COVID-specific IgA2 that you would want to get. Ideally, in you know patients, you get IgA2, which is the secretory IgG, or not IgG, the secretory Ig, so IgA, then the secretory immunoglobulin that is going to kind of coat your mucosal surfaces, like your lungs, and protect you from the nasty virus. But here, that didn't happen. Now, mind you, they're picking people who are staying super sick and staying in the hospital. And what it's showing is that people don't, when they don't clear the infection, they progress to a state where their immune cells produce more and more TGF beta. And so they're building up this TGF beta over time. But that TGF beta then doesn't spark an immune response to COVID. It actually seems to be correlated with the opposite. It seems to be correlated with a lack of um, specific IgA2 that binds to the antigens in COVID. And so in people who are getting sick, what seems to be happening, staying sick, and that's a key thing. They're not just getting sick, they're staying sick. They're getting a production of TGF beta in their plasma blasts. And that plasma blasts are not producing antigen COVID antigen-specific antibodies, which is probably partly why they're staying sick. And so I thought this was very interesting. It kind of shows that there's an immune dysregulation going on. And so you're having this immune activation, right? A high state of TGF beta, but it's not killing the thing it wants to be killing, which is exactly the problem we see clinically. So when I'm in the clinic, we, you know, we get some people that get sick, they get better. And then we get other people who just can't get better. And it seems to be this could explain part of what's going on, which is that the people these patients aren't clearing the infection because their immune system's no longer specifically amplifying up to clear the infection, right? Their plasma blasts are not producing the antibodies to help clear it. They're producing a bunch of cytokines, but they're not doing the job. So I thought this was really cool. I think it was a really novel approach because they were able to get these patient samples. So I, I really like seeing that they were able to do that. I would love to see it validated now in a higher end, maybe taking people that, um, are sick for two weeks and still in the hospital for take, versus taking people who got sick and better at the same net, you know, total time point afterwards, say two weeks out, and then looking and seeing if this pattern's still there, because then you can really get the mechanism. And if you see this divergence with this high TGF beta state and a lack of, you know, immune specific plasma or pathogen specific plasma blasts in the people that are staying sick, that could really then tie this together. And so that'd be a really cool next follow-up. But overall, I thought this was you know, some really good practical science and really demonstrating that uh, something is going on here, that, that there's a type of immune dysregulation. And of course, this paper doesn't get into how COVID or SARS-CoV-2 technically is doing that, but I think it really opens up a lot of avenues and really points um, some, you know, kind of gets that big uh, neon arrow pointing at, at some places about where we should be looking next. So yeah, this was a really cool one. I was excited to see it. Uh, makes sense. It got published where it did, and it's a pretty solid. That's very interesting. I I wonder, do the authors also mention another known kind of cytokine uh, in, in in severe COVID? I would say, for example, IL six IL six receptor uh, blocking antibodies seem to be as well therapeutic in in case of severe COVID. And do they also they also compare or do they also evaluate these other cytokines in these conditions or are they only focused on TGF beta? What brings them to focus on TGF beta? So what they 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 didn't look at IL six specifically in that whole cytokine storm issue, but they looked at IL twenty one, which was what induces IgG one and interferon gamma, which induces IgG two, and they see this class switching to an IgG 
an IgA state, and that's driven by TGF-beta. So they saw that the plasma cells were switching which immunoglobin they were producing and saw that, lo and behold, uh, TGF-beta, which does that, is indeed elevated. And so, and so they went that way. They were really focused on the plasma blast biology and what was causing the different immunoglobulins to be produced. And so um, they did not address IL-6. I think that's actually also interesting because the IL-6 inhibition has been kind of a, a windmill of tilting. It kind of works, but it doesn't really really work in COVID very well. There's been very mixed results on if you can treat people with it to treat the cytokine storm, which has also been the true in the case of cancer as well, right? Like the cytokine storm just doesn't do it very often as well as we'd want. And I guess also the relationship with cell uh, based immunity of like T cell immunity against COVID would also probably not necessarily correlate to this, to the to the B cell or the plasma side uh, uh, antibody production. Right. Now it'd be interesting to see if these high level TGF was also screwing up the ability of T cells to recognize it over time. But this is really focused on the antibody production side and how the class switching isn't working um, as well as they would want to do what they wanted to do. Wow. Well, we learned something new about. This virus and this infection, basically every single day, it's it's quite astonishing to see the rate of of research and all new things that we had no idea a year ago, and now they're being published and shared. Um, it's really kind of an exciting, kind of scary and exciting time to be. It's both at the same time. No, I agree. So I think you're up next. What do you got for me here? So continuing with the with our theme, uh, single cell uh, sequencing theme, which I think today it's quite strong. I want to talk to you about a paper titled Single Cell Chromatin Accessibility Landscape Identifies Tissue Repair Program in Human Regulatory T-Cells. Uh, the first authors are Michael Delacker, Malte Simon, and Likes Sandering, and it was published in Immunity uh, this month. And uh, this work comes from the lab of Marcus Feuer from the Regensburg Center for Interventional Immunology, probably collaboration with the German, the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg. And in this paper, they really uh, did some serious single cell chromatin accessibility profiling with this ataxic that can look into methylation patterns uh, in single cells, which is kind of really, really a latest thing out, out in single cell research. And they looked at this to use this uh, um, this protocol to characterize the uh, landscape of the chromatin of regulatory T cells and differentiate and compare T-Rex uh, from the spleen or from the blood in comparison to tissue resident T-Rex in the skin in the fat, in the fatty tissue, and also sometimes in the liver. So the lab of Marcus Feuer has been working with um, that, so viscera adipose uh, tissue T-Rex for a really long time. So they're really quite good at it. And they have uh, also looked at the characteristics of T-Rex in skin. And earlier last year, they actually, this this paper is based on a previous publication in which they look at, uh, not at this, um, not necessarily at the transcription or the transcriptome of these cells, but they look at the chromatin accessibility profile, so the methylation of the chromatin. And and they find that 
uh, they can identify a subset of T-Rex in the tissue that are characterized particularly by the expression of the IL-33 receptor, uh, ST2, and that they are related to a tissue regenerative profile. They look at them and they show that they are uh, probably tissue thymus derived. They are different from peripherally induced T-Rex that they can, for example, identify in the colon. And they really um, characterize this population through their methylation patterns. And what they do in this paper is they look a little bit closer uh, again into, into uh, this uh, T-Rex from different, from different organs, from the spleen, from the lung, the colon, um, and from the adipose tissue. What, what they do is they also look at them in, in, in humans. So they find this, uh, they, after identifying this, this, this profiles, they look at human cells and they can also show that T-Rex have this, this, um, this uh, profile that, uh, that really identifies them as tissue resident cells and what is very what is very interesting is that they find certain markers that are, are also related to very active, very what are also known as these effector T-Rex subset. Um, and uh, I think that here I want to uh, uh, really uh, highlight uh, one um, CCR8, which has also before had been associated to T-Rex in tumor tissues, and they also find these ones as uh, really tissue resident cells. And I think what they, the nice point that they make is that when they compare T cells from skin and T cells from, for example, tumors, melanoma tumors, they show that a lot of these, a lot of these uh, characteristics that, that are found in T-Rex in tumors and have been much studied are actually seem to be a more general property of T-Rex in the tissue. And the fact that the T-Rex seem to also uh, express a, a, a more, more of a tissue regeneration program seems to be kind of an explanation of why they can be so detrimental to the immune, immune response in tumors because they are probably sustaining the, 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 the tumor by providing these factors there. So I think it is mostly, I really like this paper because it is really a tour de force. Uh, they are looking very closely and really analyzing these profiles that are very hard. So this this single cell attack seek is very is not easy to do. So I'm I'm quite impressed at how they have achieved. They have they could get all this this material. So they used, for example, um, fat fat and, and skin. They got it from surgeries, from like cosmetic surgeries, where they re remove excess fat and excess skin. And from that, they were able to collect the cells and really get enough for doing this analysis. I thought it was very, um, very technically very impressive. And the amount of data that they generated is, is really, really, is really huge. And I think for those people that are interested in understanding the, the identity of T-Rex in tumors and how this correlates with the T-Rex in, in, in the tissue, which we know are there and they're very important, uh, it's really a great source of, of transcriptomic data. And uh, certainly this, uh, they also do transcriptomic and also the um, this uh, chromatin availability, which I think there, there's not a lot of such curated data around. That's really interesting. I, I, I 
going back to the tissue repair, which is where my brain immediately goes. Um, you know, it makes sense that Tregs have to be there, right? Because immune cells, when they infiltrate, they're going are necessary. Actually, immune cell infiltration is necessary for wound healing, but you, having a bunch of macrophages and monocytes hang around long term in your tissue is probably not very healthy for it. And so, it makes sense that Tregs are there to suppress it, um, and then kind of hold things in check. But the fact that they also produce some of the the genes needed for wound healing, and so some of those wound healing processes, and then with this can obviously go awry, as you said, in cancer, right? Like, so if you have all these Tregs that are supposed to be there to help your tissue repair itself after your cut, well, healing that doesn't stop is cancer, in a way. And so, and so this goes wrong. So I, th I think this is very interesting. I wonder if, you know, one of the things down the road will be some way to target these cells um, therapeutically. But then, of course, you have a problem of then you're going to screw up wound healing. Yeah, so they do mention that CCR8 seems to be an interesting target, but exactly that's the point. CCR8 is also expressed in kind of normal tissue uh, regulatory T cells. So uh, it's hard to see how you could gar guarantee specificity uh, kind of out of just as a starting. Maybe there's 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 something that can be done. But I think CCR8 is, is an interesting target for depleting or for controlling T-Rex in, in these uh, tumors. No, totally. And then obviously we already know with immunotherapy now that you can get cytokine storms as one of the major toxicities. And so drug companies are working on, you know, antibodies yeah. that have multi-arms or whatever that can bind to multiple things. So these more complex biologics versus the single target stuff. So maybe that'll drive the specificity too. All right. So <laughs> I'm going to pound you back with even more single cell RNA-seq. Uh, so hey, next double up, down. Uh, triple down, I think at this point. <laughs> So next up, we have single cell profiling of myeloid cells and glioblastoma across species and disease stages reveals macrophage competition and specialization. This was published on March 29th here in Nature Neuroscience. First author is Anita Rita Pombo Antunes, and it's the Mojavedi Lab. So this was an interesting one. I kind of had to really go out on a limb here well, as I was reviewing it. Uh, you know, so it's the wrong end of the body for me in general, right? We're at the brain, not the other end. Uh, it is cool, some so cool single cell RNA-seq, which I enjoy. But they really kind of did a deep dive on different types of macrophages. So specifically comparing monocyte-derived and microglia-derived macrophages in the, in the setting of glioblastoma. So glioblastoma is a pretty nasty, aggressive primary brain tumor. It becomes, re it's refractory immune therapy. You get, you know, surgery and radiation and chemo, and then recurrence generally then happens, and then you die. Uh, and it's really how much time you can buy. So it's pretty nasty and ugly. Uh, there's a lot of drive to get immunotherapy to work, but as you know, the brain's an immuno kind of sacred place. And so we it hasn't worked so far, and understanding the immune environment of these tumors are living in is going to be important to developing proper immunotherapy. And so that's where this group comes in, and they're trying to really understand from a innate cell perspective, what macrophages are doing what and where. So the brain has a whole bunch of different macrophages in it. There's microglia type macrophages in the parenchyma and then border associated macrophages in the border regions of the brain. And microglia are derived from the yolk sac, but border associated macrophages have a distinct transcriptive profile and some populations originate from the bone marrow. So just like we were talking with the gut a second ago with Tregs having, you know, there's these peripherally derived Tregs and then thymus, or you can almost think centrally derived Tregs. You also have different ways that the bone marrow or different ways that macrophages are derived. And so what they did here is they looked at progressive tumors. So first stage, 
second stage tumors where it recurs. They looked at, um, and mostly using human samples, but then validating some of this in mice um, and what happens over time during the disease progression of both these two populations. So uh, because they all, you know, we all like acronyms, I'm going to try to avoid them here. So you have tumor-associated macrophages, TAMs, but you have microglia and monocyte-derived TAMs. And what they found is that both populations exist at any given time, and they didn't have a ton of patient samples to really validate every shift that happens uh, as disease progresses. But what they were able to show really interesting is that both of these sets of macrophages exist. And most interestingly, um, there are subsets that they kind of shift around depending on what you do to push the system, but they all, but there's this homeostasis to maintaining macrophages. And what was most interesting is when they did something called a CSFR1 blockade to deplete um, macro, one group of macrophages, the other group came back. So I believe if you depleted the monocyte macrophages, the glial-associated macrophages took over, which can show you part of the reason why immunotherapy doesn't work very well, is that there's a whole other army of macrophages ready to go if you deplete one set. And those all exist in the microglia in the brain to begin with. They also found that microglia-derived macrophages were predominant, tumor-derived, tumor-associated macrophages were predominant in the new tumors, but then became outnumbered by the monocyte-derived macrophages after recurrence, especially in the hypoxic tumor environment. So as the tumor gets more hypoxic, more and more necrotic, more advanced, you get more and more monocyte-derived TAMs with infiltration as opposed to these microglia-derived, which you can think of kind of being there from the beginning. So this paper is pretty cool, and it kind of does a landscape. There's not a lot of mechanism here, but I think this idea that one macrophage will compensate for the other is really neat. I think that that shows, A, the body has redundancy in a way we often forget about, and B, that that redundancy often makes, when we try to treat things and deplete something or under, over, under undo something, very hard to overcome. So, you know, being a chemist by nature, I always think about equilibrium. And I think people forget that the body tries to maintain equilibrium and will do whatever the hell it can to do it. And we can try to push on that. And sometimes medications are great because something's out of balance. Like you have too much blood sugar because you have diabetes. And so you get insulin and that restores equilibrium. But these tumors exist in equilibrium already because that's how they grow, because they are in equilibrium with the system. And so pushing it out, there's all these compensatory mechanisms that try to keep it there. And so understanding that um, is pretty interesting and I think a really kind of a key insight. You say there was not a lot of mechanism. Do they know what brings this monocyte-derived hams to the side and whether these are helping or hindering the, the kind of the growth of the tumor or how does that relate to the kind of the survival of the patient? So TAMs are generally bad. Um, they promote the tumor and both types, and I don't think they found like one was helpful or one was harmful. And so it's really understanding what gets them there. They didn't go into the chemotactic uh, mechanisms here. That inhibition they do is the CS, CSF1R doesn't inhibit monophyte flux, but blocks monocyte to macrophage differentiation. Um, and then they did inhibitor with PLX3397, which is a macrophage inhibitor, and that reduced tumor growth, which shows that the TAMs play an important role in growth tumoral activity. 
So let's just quadruple the, the, the single cell analysis here. And I will just tell you about one more paper that I looked at and that I found very interesting. Uh, this paper is called Resident and Circulating Memory T-Cells Persist for Years in Melanoma Patients with Durable Responses to Immunotherapy and was published in Nature Cancer uh, on 24th of March. The first author is called Yinqian Han, and it's from the lab of Christina Angelis at the Geisel School of Medicine and Dartmouth. And, you know, you know that uh, immunotherapy and checkpoint inhibitions are relatively uh, recent uh, therapy options for, for many cancers, uh, particularly melanoma has uh, uh, really benefited a lot just as a, as, a, as a kind of um, detail here, uh, ipilimumab CTLA-4 antibodies was approved uh, not even 10 years ago. Well, around, no, sorry, exactly 10 years ago, to 2011. And nivolumab, for example, the PD-1 inhibitor was only uh, approved in 2014. And the combination, which has shown a lot of promise, but a lot of uh, toxicity, unfortunately, was, is, was approved about six years ago. So it's really recent. And therefore, there's not a lot of long-term data available from this from these patients because, well, we don't have that many. And um, so, one of the one of the the, the interesting uh, aspects of this paper is they actually look into patients that have been treated with various types of immunotherapy, uh, so checkpoint inhibition, but also a couple of IL-2, uh, high IL-2 doses, which uh, was also uh, tested early on, but it's not really a therapy anymore. And they looked at the the patients that responded pretty well. And one of the things that happens when patients with melanoma respond well to uh, immunotherapy and particularly checkpoint inhibition is that they develop uh, vitiligo, uh, which is the this... Uh, immune reaction against the melanocytes of the skin, and people lose skin color, uh, often in patches, and then they they don't have, they, they develop these kind of white patches in their skin. So, and this actually is kind of, it's kind of well, it's, it's, a, it's a quite extreme side effect, but uh, it has been shown that often correlates with a good response. So it's actually a good signal, a good sign to have vitiligo. And what they did in this in this publication is they looked at uh, a series of patients. So they started with four, it's a small, small group, but I think it's very valuable uh, in, in any case. They have uh, four long-term metastatic, metastatic melanoma uh, cancer survivors, and they looked at the T cells uh, in their skin, in tumor uh, resections, uh, in their blood, and they uh, do looked. They do single cell sequencing of this of these um, cells, both transcriptomic and also TCRs. And basically, what they they see that there is particularly in the in the skin patches where with vitiligo, so the the skin patches that were uh, deprived of it, where the melanocytes were affected, they can show that there were a very considerable population of activated T cells that are there and they're skin resident 
and when they compare it also to cells in in uh, from the tumor resections, they find that there is this three population, these three clusters of cells that are present in both in both places. So again, the the tumor and the tissue resident cells seem to be have a lot in common, and they show that these cells uh, cluster in three different uh, what they identify as three different clusters. And they're very different to the cells found in the blood. I think this is, maybe it's not that, something not that new, but I think this is uh, one of the first, uh, the first uh, works that actually looks into the patients after several years, because this was several years after treatment or, or sometimes it's, it's between, uh, between one and nine years after treatment. So I think this is very interesting because it shows that we suspect so we have always suspected that uh, these this, this, uh, responses are probably going to be quite durable. Their cells are probably going to establish a tissue resident population in the skin, particularly in these patches uh, that uh, with the LIGO. And so this is what they show in this, in this publication. And I think it's also interesting that they, these three clusters that they identify, uh, they either have um, some of these clusters are characterized by uh, transcripts that uh, show very active TCR signaling, uh, and they have another cluster in which they look that uh, the uh, interferon gamma signature, and this cluster really correlates. Uh, they do they look into published previously published data, and they show that this cluster in in, in melanoma samples correlates with survival of, of the patient. So seems to be, again, very important. And then find these cells also then living in the skin for, for, for a long time after treatment. And they have a, a third cluster, which uh, correlates to the, the traditionally exhausted, um, chronically activated uh, subset. And, and I want to say that it was also interesting that although all these cells are residing in the skin or in the tumors, there are very few of them actually encode, for example, CD103 that has often been associated with tissue resident cells. But this is only found in, in some of the cells in one of the clusters, which I think is also good to know that this, is, this marker often is considered as a, as a tissue resident associated marker. But in this analysis, it doesn't seem to be the case. I think that um, also they look into the, the, the clonotypes, so they have another cohort of, of patients again, and they're looking at the clonotypes of the original biopsies many, many years ago. And again, they find the same clonotypes still in the skin uh, of these patients. These patients don't have any tumor anymore, so they can only find them in the skin. And they also find a subset of effector T cells uh, that are clonic clonally related to the cells in the skin, which suggests that maybe the skin also serves as a reservoir of uh, antigen-specific cells, because and, that, and these cells can, to some extent, circulate in the blood uh, and and maintain surveillance in the whole in the whole organism. I think it's I think it's really very nice to see after all these years that these patients really you can prove that they have a demonstrable uh, a resident memory in their skin, and that correlates with the this this the side effect, this on-target off-tumor effect of 
attacking melanocytes, for example. And so I think, again, it's a really great, I think it's a really great uh, uh, source of information, of uh, really nice data set for those people trying to understand uh, uh, tissue residence and the longevity of of these diesel responses. So kudos to, to the authors. Well, that, that's super interesting. I think the idea that the skin is serving as a reservoir, in this case, because it's melanoma, but there's a reservoir at the site of the normal tissue, as it were, uh, in relation to the tumorous tissue that serves as an immune reservoir is fascinating. It's also really cool that they use vitiligo as a as a marker. It's kind of genius to to use that process because it makes sense, right? You're going to deplete, you're going to have some cross-reactivity and deplete healthy monos, uh, melanocytes. And of course, just to point out, um, the most famous person I can think of with vitiligo is Michael Jackson or was Michael Jackson, who was known for having it. And that's why his skin changed color over time. So just, you know, throwing that little dating myself back here. Right, but he did not get checkpoint inhibition for that, I No, I no, assume. no, 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 no. He, he, was, <laughs> he was sadly uh, deceased by the time I think most of these drugs were really on the market. Uh, but anyways, um, we're going to be speaking here soon. We're, we're done with the roundup. We're going to be speaking here soon with Drs. Mindy, Amy, and Kristen Ankovic in just a moment. But before we get to that, Explore scientific resources for your immunology research at the Stem Cell Technologies Immunology Learning Center. Choose from different research areas and find expert interviews, technical tips, educational webinars, instructional videos, and much more. Visit stemcell.com backslash immunology hyphen research for more information. Hey, uh, Jason, do you, do you have siblings? I do not, sadly. I have two children of my own, though. If you, if you had a sibling, would you imagine, like... I know, going business with them? Well, my son would probably kill my daughter, or my daughter, actually, probably my daughter would probably kill my son, even though she's younger at this point. So, no. Well, because our three guests today uh, have a very interesting story. So, today we are joined by uh, doctors Mindy Engevik, Amy Engevik, and Kristen Engevik, which you might have guessed are sisters. And uh, they are three scientists, and they all work uh, with gut science. So uh, Mindy Engevik is an assistant professor at Medical University of South Carolina. And uh, she did her PhD at the University of Cincinnati and then also worked at Baylor College in Houston. Amy Engevik also did her PhD at the University of Cincinnati and uh, is now moving to uh, work at the same place as Mindy at the uh, Medical University of South Carolina, where she's also opening her own lab. And uh, Kristen Engevik also did her PhD at the University of Cincinnati and is currently a postdoc at the Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, Doctors Engevik, it's so nice to have you today. Well, thanks so much for inviting us. This is yeah, a great so fun opportunity. And Brenda, I have to say, when I first met them back, I think at DDW in 2018, it was confusing because I kept seeing people in the hallway with the same name tag, but the first name kept changing. And then I realized there were multiple of them and they were all in the same field. And then and then at Keystone in 2019, we got to sit down and I was just I've been endlessly fascinated by the uh, differentiation process that is that has led to this event. Let's put it that way. I heard somewhere that I. Amy and Kristen got into uh, kind of biological sciences by working at, with Mindy in the lab. Is that correct? 
Yep. yep. <laughs> it all starts with Mindy. In yep. the beginning, <laughs> there was Mindy. And then she took us all along the, the fun journey of science. Well, I am the oldest child and, you know, oldest children are bossy or have great leadership potential. Are you saying you recruited them as labor in, in the lab as like an undergrad or high school student and just had them <laughs> pipetting in the summer? Because that would be very good. Well, I mean, I have always been very industrious and it's good to have delegation, right? <laughs> so, yes, no, as a um, it was more as a, a grad as a grad student, I recruited Amy to come and have some fun with me in the lab. And then she also decided that that was a great choice for her. And then she started and then Kristen was an undergrad in the lab in grad school as well, and also found that it was so much fun and enjoyable to do science. So, so you infected them. It was organic. Yes. It was organic. <laughs> it, was, it was very organic. Not infection whatsoever. A science bug. Very fun. So I like to think that the gut is the maybe the most complex and largest immune organ that we have. Uh, so it's very fascinating uh, research that has to do with with gut and and everything that goes around it is I find it very fascinating. I was wondering that maybe you can uh, each of you can give a quick uh, introduction to the research that you do in your lab or in your another uh, in your postdoc uh, to our listeners so they can be more familiar with what you're working on. Uh, I guess I'll start first. This is Mindy, the oldest. Um, I'm really interested in how the bacteria interact with the epithelium and particularly the mucus layer where their metabolites or toxins might have a, would be a closer proximity to the host and therefore would have um, a more of a direct effect on overall health. So, you know, I'm interested in commensals and how they uh, suppress inflammation and benefit the host. And then, of course, how pathogens subvert the mucus layer and then the host and cause um, inflammation and in, in settings such as um, C. difficile infection and inflammatory bowel disease. Amy? So I'm probably the least immunology person of the group, but I study the molecular motor myosin 5b, which has been discovered to cause severe on-remaining diarrhea in children with mutations of myosin 5b. And so I study the, path the pathogenesis of that congenital diarrhea and also taking it a little bit further and looking at my, when I start my lab, I'll be looking at how myosin 5b might result in liver cholestasis and also how it is necessary to maintain polarity in the gut and how it can be when it's not functioning properly how it can result in things like ibd but my post or my graduate work was actually on ulcer repair and i did some more immunology with that looking at macrophage recruitment during gastric ulceration and how that might improve healing of the gut epithelium kristen so I am a postdoc in the lab of Dr. Joseph Heiser here at Baylor, and we're primarily a virology lab. So my project looks at rotavirus and its interactions with the host in the epithelium. We recently have a paper showing that rotavirus can actually exploit host signaling. And so part of my project is looking further into that. I have a small side project looking at macrophages and their response to rotavirus infection. So it's a little bit of immunology, but more looking at that kind of innate immune response in the epithelium itself, because my background is primarily in epithelial biology. Well, thank you. I always like to remind people that intestinal epithelial cells are one of the most dominant antigen presenting cells. All, all gut epithelial biologists are immunologists, as I'd far like as I'm that. concerned. I'm going to add that to my expertise now. <laughs> my question uh, to start with is, so they all, you got you 
ended up working with Mindy when she was a grad student and then kind of went your own separate paths that obviously have stayed close together to the point that some of you are now recoalescing in South Carolina <laughs> just to form your own center, it sounds like. Um, so how did how did you guys find your separate ways? This is really an Amy and Kristen question. So you worked with Mindy, you learned some things, and then what what tweaked your brains to say, yes, gut, but I wanted to go this way or that way in the process? Well, I'll start. This is Amy. So I think really none of us started out wanting to be gut people. Mindy did her grad school work in a GI lab, and then I joined the program and rotated and honestly, my first three rotations, I didn't like the labs and I didn't have an opportunity to join any of them because of funding. And I really chose my project based on my mentor who I really liked, which was Yana Zavros, who it does specializes in gastric epithelial cell biology. And that's really what got my interest in GI. It was purely because I had an exceptional mentor who is just a phenomenal scientist and an awesome woman in science to be with. So that kind of started me down the GI path. And then I think Mindy and I probably, because Kristen's a bit younger, two years into our PhDs, we're like, we we initially want to do industry, but we thought, you know, we see so much of the, the plight, I guess, of women in science and to really be strong female role models to the next generation of scientists really turned us down this path. We all like, we both liked GI a lot. So we both decided to do postdocs in GI specifically. And GI is such a great community. I think that the D GI biologists, and GI scientists are some of the best out there. You know, I think it's a niche and they're really collaborative and really supportive, I think, of each other. And Kristen, you can tell why you did it. <laughs> I, well, when I did, uh, I did summer research in Mindy's lab when I was an undergrad and obviously she was, uh, uh, she started as a research tech. Is it tech, Mindy, or? Yeah, yeah. tech. Okay, research tech sometimes get the titles mixed up and then as a grad student and so I really did enjoy the gut itself I I don't I really enjoyed looking doing bacterial work with Mindy was really fun and also kind of adding more application to what I was learning in my courses and then uh, I decided to join a lab that neighbored where Amy's did her PhD where we did a little bit different and we did more microscopy and the gut and using the kind of more um, stomach in terms of doing in vivo imaging and also doing in vitro with organoids. And I really enjoyed that kind of work. And then kind of adding to what Amy said or kind of supporting, I really do like the GI community. I think it's definitely fun and a really great supportive group. And I've met a lot of people and networking and everything like that. And I also think it's fun because the, the gut provides so much diversity. You could go esophagus, you could go all the way down to the colon. I don't know why you'd want to do the colon, Mindy, but how dare you? <laughs> no, I think it's probably in the small intestine where you get the most surface area. But um, yeah, I just really enjoy the diversity and how you can do so much with it. To, to circle back the the science back to you, Mindy, since we skipped you at the beginning, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of C. diff and IBD. Obviously, we, we can talk about the superiority of the colon in terms of where the action's <laughs> at all day long. Um, but what kind of drew you to where you're at now? Uh, being an empathetic audience, I don't want to say, oh, it's clear, but what, what makes you tick in terms of, of the problems that you're seeing and trying to solve? Well, I think one of the things that's so awesome about the gut microbiome and the gut is that it's so complex and there are so many players involved and these community structures I think are really important and 
right now they're not well understood. So I really like it just for the questions. Every time you answer one scientific question, you get 20 to 30 more that you need to answer. And I just find it amazing that I get the opportunity every day to come to work and try to answer some of these questions and then get new questions. And it just really motivates me. I love getting good data. I uh, may or may not do dances around my lab when, you know, I get exciting things. And it just really keeps me passionate about the science. And I think that the gut microbiota is the key to harnessing health. And I think that we're really appreciating, especially in these recent years, how far the microbiome stretches in terms of affecting host health, you know, gut brain access, gut liver access, gut kidney access, gut heart access. I think we're really appreciating that the gut microbiome is really the master puppeteer. So to follow up on that, as since we, I, we want to try to stay immunology focused, although, you know, rubber epithelial cells are immune cells. Um, when we think about the infections that we have going on in the immune system and the fact there's all these bugs that, um, you know, shouldn't cause an immune reaction, sometimes do. And then we just talked about checkpoint inhibitors having an effect now being linked to the microbiome. I guess my big outstanding question for you guys as scientists and to open this discussion up is, we, I, you know, I always think about what is first, you know, is it the microbiome that establishes the phenotype? Is it the patient's genetics and environment that set up a microbiome that creates the phenotype, you know, because the immune system is based on your genes, vice versa. I don't think there is a right answer, but I wonder how you guys think about this um, more globally. Like, you know, it, it seems to be a feedback loop, but how do you go about teasing this apart? Anywhere from, you know, a rotavirus infection and the fact that that's going to then cause dysbiosis afterwards with all the diarrhea that you get. Or even these, you know, syndromes in children where they're going to have massive diarrhea, but that's going to affect their microbiome and probably cause even more inflammation that keeps going. So I can give you each a shot and maybe think about, talk about how, how you guys tease this giant ball of complexity apart. Uh, I guess I'll start first. This is Mindy, the oldest. I, I think that actually the genetics of the person really makes a big difference. My, my PhD work was on intestinal ion transport. And if you knocked certain ion transporters out in mice, they had very diverse effects on the gut microbiome. You know, if you knocked out the sodium hydrogen exchanger isoform three, you no longer would get proper hydrogen excretion. So you had a, a very basic pH. It also caused, you know, an accumulation of sodium and you got diarrhea and that definitely had a huge influence on the gut microbiome just, at, just with that one mutation. So I tend to think that the host genetics really controls the environment, which controls the microbiome. But of course, then the host also controls the diet and diet is a huge component, I think, of what the microbiome is in every individual person. And it's been shown that diet can change the microbiome within 24 hours. So that's pretty dramatic effects depending on what you eat, where you live. Um, so I think there's a lot of factors and it's complicated, but I think that's where the advent of germ-free mice really come in and be able to allow us to ask those questions. What does this certain microbiome do in response to the host? Or if you put into a genetically deficient mouse model of something, you know, how does the microbiome shift in relationship to how the host changes the environment? And then of course the organoid model or the enteroid model is really a phenomenal tool for us to be able to ask what microbes do individually to the host epithelium or what, how they respond for in a community structure. So I think we're getting to get some of those tools to be able to ask those really complicated questions, but um, it's a pretty exciting time to be doing science in the, in the microbiome and in the GI field. Okay, I'll go next, Amy, the middle child. So I think it's really a chicken and egg situation, right? We Who knows what really comes first, but I, I tend to agree with Mindy that it probably is genetically set by the host first, the epithelium and the genetics really impact it. 
And then, so, you know, there are obviously so many factors and it's really difficult. I think, especially we have great mouse models, but, you know, mice only recapitulate human physiology to a certain degree and no two humans, unless you're identical twins are exactly alike. And everyone has different diets, different backgrounds, different places they live. And so many things that can change your microbiome or change your, you know, your epithelium then dictate so much. Cause I also study a lot of ion transporters in the gut. And when you knock them out, one or all, you have so many changes in the microbiome. So I tend to think that maybe the gut epithelium is crucial for setting up that microenvironment, but then the bacteria can also change the niche environment. So it's, who knows, but I do think we probably, we're getting closer and closer to elucidating that, but will we ever fully know? Hopefully, but who knows? (laughs) So as a follow-up, have you guys, I've been starting to play with the air-liquid interface system to get it to co-culture with bugs. I don't know if you guys have started to play with that at all. It's it's on my bucket list of uh, scientific things since, you know, right now throwing bugs on organoids doesn't really go well because you're just giving a whole bunch of bacteria to the basal lateral surface of a epithelial cell. And they kind of hate that. I don't know if you guys have played around with that at all or been thinking about it as a kind of a technical thing, but, you know, to jump into stem cell podcast and immunology. I guess I'll go first. This is Mindy. So um, in the past, we've done microinjections using an oocyte injector to get the bacteria into the luminal site. And it is painstaking. It's completely feasible, but it takes a lot of time and you have to make sure that you get every every organoid. And, um, you know, it's it's just technically challenging. Um, but Amy will be talking to you a little bit more. She's been doing extensively the air liquid interface for pig organoids, which se- seem to not differentiate unless you give them this additional stimuli. Amy? Oh, wow. You just took everything, Mindy. Okay. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so, I've been doing, I grew, we made a model of a mutation in myosin 5B in pigs that recapitulates a human MVID mutation that's found in the Navajo Nation. So these kids have severe diarrhea and our pig model really recapitulated that. But when you grow intestinal organoids from, and these are neonatal pigs because they get severe diarrhea, when you grow them, they don't fully differentiate in 3D matrigel. And so you don't get a really well-defined brush border and they seem to have some oddities. And so we put them in transwells and we grew them on an air liquid interface and they ended up getting normal brush border packing presenting the right transporters where you need them in the gut. And so they really did seem to recapitulate better under an air-liquid interface that I couldn't get in 2D submerged cultures or in 3D organoid cultures. So I think it's a great tool. I haven't, I've been meaning to play around with it some more and adding different things in and out because you can also, you know, on the bottom of the transwell, you can add macrophages, dendritic cells, you can add immune cells to it, which would be really interesting to do a co-culture that more closely mimics human physiology than the ones currently done in major job. Can I ask, why do you use a pig model for this kind of experiments? So we did a pig model because mice can only recapitulate it up to a certain point. Because when we did mouse models, they die very quickly after birth. Mice also have a very different, you know, gut early on in development, whereas the pig one is actually very similar to human. And initially when we did the pig model, our goal was to try some surgical procedures to see if we could bypass the proximal small intestine, which is what seems to be the worst in children and mice with this disease. But it ends up in our pig model, which is probably the closest to the human model. We, When we look at the whole intestine, it's actually really a devastating disease along the entire length from the duodenum down to the colon. 
Whereas in mice, it seems to be pretty much the proximal, so the duodenum and the jejunum is messed up. So our thought was to extend the ileum and see if we could restore transport of particularly water. But in our pig, that's not the case. And since nobody has biopsied children along the whole GI tract for this disease, I think it really gave us a great insight into what's likely happening in humans that we couldn't do in a mouse model. Very interesting using uh, pig models if they are closer to the human. I don't think you, maybe I don't, I'm not enough in the in the field, but I don't, haven't seen much of that. Uh, There's not, they're very expensive models as well. So, you know, cost benefit analysis. In the old days at DDW, they used to have pigs in uh, on the floor at the show. So DDW is Digestive Disease Week. And so they used to have on the show floor, like where they're showing equipment, they'd have pigs there where people could scope them. <laughs> as a way to yeah, demonstrate. I mean, I've never seen that. That's amazing. <laughs> they, they don't do it anymore because it's become problematic, but they used to have pigs there that you would uh, corral and then they would uh, they'd be corralled and you could like scope a pig and test out the new endoscope and see if you liked it because it's relatively similar to a human. All right, Kristen, you wrote a virus, air liquid interface. Are you going to cause your uh, liquid interface to explode with a uh, little rotavirus culture? You know, we we do want to try it at some point. One caveat is most of our viral research that we've been doing is using live imaging. So we have human enteroids that have been um, we have that have that express the genetic encoded calcium indicator G camps. So one caveat is that if you try to do the air liquid interface, you the transvol is too far out of range for you to actually image it. So while you can get some data, it's not necessarily the kind we want at the moment because um, we're primarily for us to look at host responses. We're looking primarily at the calcium um, calcium communication through signaling between infected and uninfected cells, and then also looking at the cytokines based on expression. So we want to do it, but we're not entirely sure what's the best way for us to approach it in the, its current state. Also, since you know, human monolith or human organoids do form very nice monolayers. So it's not as um, necessary. And we do differentiate them just by introducing media. So I do want to try the air liquid interface. But at the moment, we don't necessarily have the right experimental setup that we could do our imaging that we really want to look at. You need a very, very fancy microscope to be able to do confocal on a trans well. They exist. I've seen it. But yeah, you have, you have to have it. And it's not cheap. One day, but right now we're just going to be happy with our human monolayers and infecting with all our different rotaviruses. Well, cool. So I wanted to circle back to women in science, and Brenda, I'm going to let you steer this, but you guys had mentioned that part of the reason you stayed in academia is to um, kind of bolster that notion, and the GI community, of course, is awesome. So I wanted you guys to comment on that, explore that a little bit more, like, you know, how do you think you can make an impact? What do you see are the current barriers? You know, even why why in academia versus industry or government or something else? Why is that the uh, the battlefield of choice? I mean, I growing up, I didn't know any female scientists personally, and I think starting my graduate school and being in a a lab with a female PI it really opened my eyes to a lot of the inherent sexism, I think, especially in science and academia, you know, women are less funded on R01s. If they're last author on papers, they are tend to be rejected more just based on name alone, female names. 
And I think a recent study came out in Nature Communications, I believe, that said that female PIs are worse mentors. And so, you know, I think there is this culture where they think that, you know, and, and I think a lot of women too think you can't do it all. You can't have a family. You can't have a good life balance. And I get academia is very difficult, you know, but I think the more women that do it and do it successfully, the better it will get. And it might not be our generation. It might not be the next one, but I think that, you know, 30 years from now, 40 years, I think it will be a big turning point. And I think more women are entering PhD programs now than men, but still there's a huge dropout after the postdoc level. And I think that really motivates me. You know, there's days where I don't love working late, having long hours, putting in grant applications, writing those papers. But there's days where I absolutely love my job. And that keeps me going. And knowing that I think there's other women who are incredibly talented out there. And if I can help and support them and give them any kind of emotional support. And I think the GI community does that really well. We have some close friends who are all in our young, you know, investigator stage or late postdoc even late graduate school. And it's so helpful to have other women that you know are going through the exact same thing, that you can call them up and just, you know, even vent a little bit or, you know, come up with ideas to how to solve these problems. What should we do for the next trainees that we have to make sure that they don't encounter these same obstacles? So I love GI science and, you know, I, I really do love what I do. And it's so much fun doing it with my sisters. You know, I think we have a very unique teamwork system where, I can call Mindy up at 1, 2 a.m. and be like, I need you to review this grant before I submit it for typos and she'll do it. And so that I don't think I could do it alone because it's, it's tough. But to have two sisters who do GI and who come out with different angles, you know, we bounce ideas off each other all the time. Mindy does so much microbiology and teaches me things and gives me ideas that I wouldn't normally have. And Kristen with rotavirus and calcium signaling. You know, I think it, it makes for really fantastic collaborations, and I think it makes us all better personally. Yeah, I'd like to chime in. This is Mindy um, about the environment. That's actually one of the things, reasons why I really wanted to have my own lab was because I saw, um, particularly at Baylor College of Medicine, Dr. Mary Estes has created this phenomenal group of primarily women PIs that are so supportive of each other, have a very interested, shared interest. They do um, lab meetings together and they're very invested in each other's career development. And I really admired that. And that's something that I would like to, to have here at MUSC is you know, a, a group of you know very collaborative, helpful people that really want the success of other women. And I think that we can start building each other up and you know, being there, like Amy said, even preventing, but having a, a supportive environment, I think is going to be really key for getting women up to the next stages and to have them progress in their careers. So tell me, Kristen, you are a postdoctoral fellow, so you're not in the stage of having your own lab or uh, directing your own people. But in your position, what do you think uh, are the challenges uh, or the kind of help that a person in a PI position can give you to help with your career or to help you move on with your, with your work? I mean, that's, that's an excellent question. I think definitely kind of chiming off what Amy and Mindy were talking about, how really support and how the GI community gives support. And uh, obviously when you have a mentor, you really want them to be very supportive and Unlike, you know, in your PhD, you definitely need a more hands-on mentor to make sure you get the grasp, you understand scientific reasoning and are able to make your projects work. Whereas I think now as a postdoc, I have a really great mentor, um, Dr. Joseph Heiser. He's amazing. I never really thought I would have such a great mentor. Um, and he's very supportive of his 
of his trainees in general. We're a smaller lab, so there's there's only about five of us. But he's really supportive and kind of allows me to have independence, which is very helpful, especially since I do want to eventually join the sister lab and have a collaborative lab between Amy and Mindy and then using my my skills in like calcium imaging. And I'm a, a budding virologist. So I can't say I'm a full virologist yet because as a second year postdoc, I don't think I have a full grasp yet of all the caveats of virology. Sometimes people talk to, like we have seminars, they talk about the different envelopes around the virus. I'm like, I don't know, which I don't understand. But I would say definitely having a really supportive lab and environment. Because I think definitely another reason I want to stay in academia because I want to make it more a supportive kind of environment for trainees and also for like young investigators and even the more senior. Because I, I think there's definitely been some like programs that I've run into. It seems to be more like a depressed environment where everyone is just so tired and exhausted and life is just a complete misery throughout your whole PhD. And yes, there are challenges as in all like walks of life, but overall your your PhD and your time at doing experiments and in science really shouldn't be this um, oppressive environment. And I definitely... There are a number of departments that are not like that, and that's great. But I think there should be more of a supportive community and environment, especially for trainees, to encourage them, since so many people do after or even before their postdoc or mid-postdoc just fall off because it's not a very supportive environment. Well, I wanted to follow up with the pink stork question, just to say, instead of, the, instead of the big pink elephant. So my wife's also a scientist, and we've had to navigate having children and how to balance that so neither career really took a hit. But right now in the pandemic, a lot of people, especially women, have really taken a hit because they've had to you know, step out of work and take care of childcare duties. And I know that's especially a problem uh, in the postdoc timing, right? In grad student postdoc, which is when people tend to have children, and then balancing that with tenure clocks, publishing. It's not like the time the timelines currently accommodate this. I know the NIH has started to by giving people an extra year for uh, K-99s to be eligible, but thinking about that kind of giant issue, um, since biology is biology and timing is timing and the careers and that timing just line up, what, you know, as women in science, what do you think we can do to uh, approach that problem in a sane way? Because obviously it can't be no one have children because then we as a species don't exist. And it also can't be, well, people who have children just have to not work because then that that's the whole problem we're in. So what do we do about that? So this is Amy. And I think the caveat has to be that none of us have children. So we're probably not the ideal audience to speak to this because it might come out as kind of hypocritical. But I do think that it's a huge issue. And I think that there are universities that are trying to address it. You know, I've heard about like Stanford, I think, is doing programs where if your child is sick, that you have daycare for them specifically that's funded through Stanford. And I think there's great ideas that can come out of this, but I obviously we're not there. And I think with COVID, it has been a huge detriment to a lot of women scientists. I'm hoping that NIH will address that. And I think there's there's a lot of amazingly brilliant people in science. And so I think if people can think about it more and come at it from different angles, too, I think that there is obviously going to be solutions to this problem. We haven't gotten it yet, but hopefully, you know, I think I think it's, it's obviously a pressing issue. So one of the things that we've heard from some of our friends that do have children that have been very helpful is that um, well, at least one of the one of our friends who's a senior postdoc 
when she went on maternity leave, her PI before she left helped by getting her a tech so that she could continue on her experiments. She could direct the, the experiments and she could get the data and go over it and kind of act as her own PI, which is ultimately she, what she wants to do. So it was an amazing training for her. It didn't slow her productivity down during her maternity leave. I mean, I thought that was a fantastic idea and it seemed to be really supportive of her. Yeah, but that sounds like a very good strategy. Uh, thing, and that's something that it's attainable. You, you, you can find and you can fund a technician as part of a maternity leave package, right? I think that's that's something that many places can actually put into into work and would have a great impact. Because otherwise, it's not fair if women have to take this huge uh, toll on their productivity and their output. And then, how can you compete? How can you show your your worth if, if, you, if you don't have your hand? There's no hands on the bench. So that, that's a great example. Conferences now are offering travel for children to come either with you and provide daycare or they're pro providing grants, which I think is phenomenal because, you know, conferences too. We're not doing it now, obviously, except for digitally, but they're huge for your career. And I think a lot of women miss out because they stay at home with their children. But now, you know, if you can bring your children with you or if you can, you know, have extra support to pay for that time when you're not going to be home, I think that's a great way to do. That's very feasible. Well, that's a good point. My wife's actually taken, um, a grandparent and the child to a conference yeah. before as a way of doing it and you know was self-funded but we could do that um but you know that was one thing and at penn they have po they have they have maternity and paternity leave are equal so you just have parental leave uh for six weeks it can be non-consecutive and so what i ended up doing was taking like the first three weeks completely off but then spreading out the rest over six months or almost a year and taking several days off a week and then my wife did the same. And so we we kind of evened the time away from the bench, so to speak. And I, and I thought that was good in that the other places of employment would be like, oh, you're a man, you get two weeks off and that's it. And you're like, well, OK, I can be home for the first two weeks. Now, how am I supposed to help my family? And you literally can't. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I so also think it speaks to, though, how important it is to have a partner who is also willing to make sacrifices for your career and to help you along. Like Jason, obviously with you and your wife, divvying it up, you know, I think a lot of childcare falls on females alone with, you know, without the male counterpart. But if you're both willing to make sacrifices and, you know, help out with the duties, I think it definitely balances out. It helps females succeed in especially tough careers like science much easier. And the law has to enable it or the, like the regulation, like some uh -huh. some men want yeah. to and can't because they're not right. You're a man. No leave yeah. for you. There's many countries in Europe. It's not even more common to have more uh, more uh, similar paternity leave or more generous paternity. Maternity leave is always guaranteed and paternity leave. Many countries have very generous programs or amounts of months that you can distribute as the family wants. So I think that's very important. Also, then the parents get to be, the fathers get to be parents, which I'm pretty sure most men want to do. Uh, so I think that would be a very fair um, also division of labor and that would help our also our humanity, I would say, not only the scientific output, but then uh, how parents can enjoy their children. This was very nice uh, talking to you three. I think your experience or your story is just fascinating. Uh, I wish I had, my brother would not pick a biology book, even if his life depended on it. So I'm a little bit envious, I have to say. 
But uh, so I think it's uh, really wish you to yeah, a lot of success with your lab and with your future uh, Angamic Interest Center. So, <laughs> so hopefully that will pick up very soon. And uh, we were thinking that maybe as, as a wrap up of our, of our episode, we always like to ask like a couple of questions that are not necessarily uh, science related, but to get to know you a little bit more. So uh, maybe we can start with Kristen uh, this time. Uh, so Kristen, just what uh, was the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, either professional or not, that really kind of st stuck with you? Well, I guess I'm going to go for the more professional one. I know Amy also already mentioned this, so she kind of stole it from me, but not really stealing from me. I think it's something we've all heard is that definitely when you're, especially if you're going into science or even um, outside, but like, if you're doing any sort of graduate work, make sure that you choose your project, not based on the actual pro project, but on your mentor. That Your mentor is really, it's a very key thing that if you have a good mentor, you're going to have a good project. Maybe it's not going to be everything that you want it to be, but I'd say a good mentor is far better than a, um, an amazing project. Great advice. All right. So, uh, Mindy, we're going to mix it up here. Middle child still has to go last. No. Um, what is the mis biggest misconception about science that you would like to resolve, if you could? Yes. I think when I was younger, when I envisioned a scientist, I always thought of an older white male with a beard. Because um, that's all I knew that we're like as a scientist, and that's what's represented on TV and in you know the popular media. So one thing that I really am hoping to do is give this idea that science is all different sorts of people. There's so much diversity in terms of race and ethnicity, gender, and of course even just personality types. A lot of you know, social media and television portray scientists as nerds that are introverts and that are not outgoing. And I think it takes both kinds. There's absolutely introverts out there, but there's tons of extroverts in science. And there are some really cool scientists that play in bands and that are concert pianists and that do all these other exciting, interesting things. And that it's not this one idea of what a scientist is. I think that I really hope that people see just the diversity of scientists and the diversity of people that are present in science. Very nice. And then maybe we can end uh, with Amy. So Amy, if you were not a scientist, what would you be? So I'd probably have gone to graduate school for literature. I really like to read, I love classics. So I think I probably would probably be like a literature professor. That's very original, very nice. <laughs> I'm gonna ask one more of everyone just cause I can't resist. And that's gonna be, if you could have one superpower, what it would be. And so Amy, you're gonna go first this time. We're gonna mix it up. Oh, I would think, I mean, could I clone myself? Because I feel like that's a superpower. I would love to have a bunch of me. I would get so much done. Yeah, that, that's one of the X-Men. They have that, you know, multiple versions okay, of Okay, good. Them. That's what I would do. Yeah. All right, Mindy, go for it. I've been watching WandaVision, and I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I would want to be like Wanda, where I could just make anything appear, anything happen, be like, I'm all out of Trizol. Boom, Trizol. <laughs> I need some buffer made or my fully defined bacterial media. Boom, done. Um, I think that's amazing. <laughs> All right, what else do we got here? Kristen, do you also well, need- Well, me just kind of, well, I, I really like those ideas with, and like how I would apply it to the lab. And then the other superpowers I'm thinking are non-lab related, so we'll go with those. I feel like, well, cause Texas just dealt with the cold Mageddon, what we're gonna call our snowpocalypse because it didn't really snow as much in Houston. So it was definitely snow. 
But I think controlling weather or like nature, if I could do the overarching of just controlling nature in general, I feel like that would be a good superpower because Amy and Mindy already took the really good lab ones. That sounds like fun. Isn't the this character in the X-Men that makes storms Storm. happen? Yeah. Storm, right? Yeah. That's, that's a cool character. Right? And she has a really cool hair and like, it's all great things. Given the love of the lab, I'm surprised no one picked immortality since, you know, then you went, you know, oh. ever have to stop. Or like yeah, over her the vision. She brought up back vision. So therefore she can bring back people from the dead. She can bring back herself. It makes sense. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. It was very fun and very interesting to to talk to the three of you. Thank you so much for inviting us. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. It was so much fun. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at, at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests.